everyone it's Kay again how you're doing um four weeks we're at four weeks and I'm still going so yeah I presume I'm doing okay I'll be honest I haven't had many major breakthroughs or epiphanies about any of this but a few of you have emailed me commenting on what I said about the birthdays and the, the significance of everybody disappearing on the same day and the significance of it happening during a leap year and more specifically it occurring on that extra day that makes a year a leap year. Obviously I noticed that it was the leap year as well and I don't think the date is a coincidence. I mean I don't know exactly what the actual significance might be but it feels too deliberate for it to be a simple coincidence. I did do a load of research into the science behind leap years, but after recording it, I realised that A, yeah, most people know what a leap year is. It's when we shove an extra day into the calendar to make sure our man-made measure of time and the season stays broadly aligned with our physical position in space. And B, it's really quite tedious. So all I will say is that this kind of calendar adjustment doesn't just apply to the Gregorian calendar. It happens in all cultures and their calendars too. Which means this concept of us jiggling around with time is not just baked into one culture. It happens all over the world in different ways and has done so for a very long time. We create days and sometimes even months to ensure that our man-made calendars stay as closely aligned to the movements of our solar system as possible. And I don't know about you, but that feels significant. I don't know why, but it does. But leap years can cause all kinds of problems as well. For example, leap years can present a problem in computing, known as the leap year bug, when a year is not correctly identified as a leap year or when February the 29th hasn't been coded correctly into the system. This reminds me of the Y2K thing. You may or may not remember it, but the millennium bug was a thing and people were really scared of it. They genuinely thought something catastrophic would happen if computers couldn't work out what the year was, so that it was year 2000 rather than 1900 because of the way that years were coded. It has something to do with the way computers calculate dates. Back in the day they were programmed to assume that the first two digits of a date would always be 19, so the only thing that needed changing was the last two figures. But that meant when the year 2000 rolled around computers would crash because they couldn't work out that the actual date was 2000 and therefore would default back to 1900. People used to go on about planes falling out of the sky and banks losing everyone's money, nuclear codes going off. It was a whole thing. Thankfully, lots of very clever people realised that this was going to happen and rather than leave it to chance, worked tirelessly to fix it, which meant none of that actually happened. But it did make me wonder about the way we calculate time in general. Now, you may have noticed I am not a physicist. As I've already said, my grasp of maths is, you know, shaky at best. I can do basic everyday stuff, but the big equations, yeah, that's like another language to me, and I don't think I'm alone in it. The people who can read the mathematics behind our universe are a constant source of fascination for me. Like, where do they even start? And time is no different. 
Even I know that time isn't just measuring our day, ensuring we get to work on time. It's much more than that. Time was here before we were. It's huge. Too huge for most people to even fathom. People talk about the Earth being billions of years old like it's nothing. But if you really think about it, it's... Well, it's beyond mind-blowing, isn't it? If a human is incredibly fortunate, they might see 90, maybe a hundred years. That's not even a blink in the eye of the universe. That's not even a neuron firing to tell the universe to blink. We are so full of our own self-importance, but in reality, we're as insignificant to the universe as the lifespan of a mayfly is to us. Even less. At least we acknowledge the mayfly's existence. I remember many years ago I was doing some fossil hunting in Wales and because it was Wales it was obviously raining. I wasn't having much luck finding anything so I was feeling a bit miserable. But then I spit a rock and inside was the perfect fossil of a trilobite. Now I suspect most of you know what a trilobite is but just in case they are an ancient extinct form of arthropod that lived in the ocean during the Paleozoic era. They first showed up in the early Cambrian, about 550 million years ago, and declined during the Devonian, and then they died out completely during the Permian, which was about 250 million years ago. The quarry I was in was Ordovician in age, which started about 480 million years ago, so the rocks were old, properly old. And so there I was, sitting in the rain, holding something in my hands that no other human being had ever seen. They might have had other examples of the same species, but this fossil, this actual creature, only I'd ever seen it. And that, that did something to me. I, I can't, ugh. I mean, the feeling, it's indescribable. The weight of those years, the gulf of time, snapped closed by this one single act of observation. We take what is around us for granted just like that trilobite did. We have lived on the same planet, but the sheer amount of time between our existences mean we may as well have been in different galaxies, different universes. Back then, there was no life outside of the sea, not even plants, nothing but rock and dust. Asking a trilobite to imagine the world outside of the water would be like something asking us what it's like to stand at the edge of the universe. What I mean is, it's just incomprehensible. Okay, yeah, humans have the intelligence to be able to ask ourselves these questions. Although I'm not here to judge trilobite intelligence, for all we know. Most of them fucked off the planet during the Devonian, you know, built little interstellar crafts and off they went to explore the galaxy. But back to my slightly laboured point. Time is huge. Like, impossibly big. I found a fossil and felt small. Insignificant. I feel the same when I look up to the stars. That light we see? It's dead light. It takes so long for the light of distant stars and planets to reach us that most of them aren't there anymore. They went supernova millions of years ago, and the light of that catastrophe is only just reaching us now. But it also works the other way around. Look at the mayflies. They famously last 24 hours, which feels tiny and insignificant to us but those 24 hours are their whole lives. To them, each minute is like a year to us. Each second stretches. We measure time relative to ourselves and our life experience, but other creatures 
their perception is different. It's relative to them and their life experience. And so what has this got to do with those missing people? I'm not sure. If I was, I wouldn't be here. But there are a few things I can't help but think about. First is the relevancy of the date. The 29th of February. It's a day that doesn't exist most of the time. Once every four years, it's just there. Balancing the cosmic book so we don't drift out of alignment. Maybe there is something about the people who were born on that day. They can't properly celebrate their first birthday until they are four. Sure, as we've heard, some parents allocate them the 28th or the 1st of March in common years, but that's not their actual birthday, their birth time. Because we don't just put significance on the day, the time is also important. That moment when we took our first independent breath and we went from a possibility into an actual person. But that moment in time isn't always there. Maybe it does make those born on that day different. Look at star signs. I know, <laughs> it's a load of old cobblers, etc. But people still read their horoscopes, still joke about their psycho Scorpio X, or blame their own faults on the fact that they're a Gemini or whatever, and that Mercury was in retrograde, so don't blame me. We put a lot of stock into when we're born. And the fact that the people who vanished were all born on that same liminal day, I can't help but think it's significant. Was there something about those people? Were they chosen for something, for some kind of purpose? And if they were, then what was it? The other thing is the nature of time. It spans huge gulfs, but also breaks down to infinitely small fractions until it may as well become eternity again. We think of infinity as something huge, but it can also be something infinitely tiny. I've looked into the duration of the event this week. You know, last week I looked into what it might have been and what might have caused it, but I didn't really think about how long it lasted. By the sounds of it, it was like God clicked his fingers. One minute everything was normal, then boom, a huge sound which seems to knock everyone out for a couple of seconds. Then disaster. Three and a half million people gone. Just like that. But what if those few seconds lasted much longer? We perceived them as a fraction of a moment, but the people caught in it, how did they experience it? They had time to vanish. Most people assume that means they were whisked off by some unknown force, but what if they didn't? What if they dropped down to another gear and experienced life at a different pace? Actually lived their lives among the frozen remains of their loved ones? Did they come together to lament the apocalypse where all their friends and family just stopped working? One minute, life is normal. Then came a terrible sound that turned the world around them into a macabre museum of forever frozen flesh. If that's the case, then I think the majority got the better end of the deal. Losing a loved one is almost unfathomably painful, but the slow torture of your loved ones being there, never moving, never ageing, trapped in a form of stasis where you can see them but never interact with them as you slowly age, wondering if at any moment they might just wake up? That actually sounds more like hell to me. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Oh, like I said, I'm no scientist, and most of that was probably nonsensical, and me perfectly demonstrating my own ignorance. But still... 
it is what it is. If anyone out there wants to correct me and tell me I'm talking bollocks, then hey, feel free. But like I said, this whole thing being a massive hoax would be a good thing, and I'd be able to sleep again. But until then is another letter, this time about a birthday party in Canberra, Australia. For May. Your birthday was always a big deal. Mostly because, unlike everybody else, your real birthday only came around once every four years. When people first met you, you were kind of reluctant to tell people because they inevitably ended up making it your defining feature. Knowing this, I was reluctant to throw such a big bash for you, but I was your oldest friend and I wanted you to have a really good time. It was your 20th, which meant you were also your fifth, so we decided the theme would be naughty preschoolers. A bit inappropriate, maybe, but it was a good excuse to dress up in oversized rompers, bright dungarees, and in the case of Francis, an adult nappy and a massive fake dummy. It didn't take long to recruit people to help with the planning. I don't think you ever realised quite how much everyone loved you. Of course it was going to be a pool party, because they're the best parties. Cold beers, a nice hot barbecue, cool pool water, and the fake coconut smell of sunscreen. Perfect. At first, you were a bit overwhelmed. I don't know if that was because your parents were so strict with you when you were growing up. Remember that time when we were nine and snuck out in the rain to go and buy lollies? My mum was annoyed, but yours was incandescent. She grounded you for a week, simply for getting your clothes wet. Or if it was simply because you weren't used to celebrating on your actual birthday. And to be fair, we did go a bit mad because we weren't used to celebrating your actual birthday either. Most of the people invited had only ever known you to celebrate on the 28th or the 1st. So to actually be there for the proper day, well, it felt like a weird kind of honour. Everyone knows what happened next. It was getting late, close to midnight, and everyone was pretty much blasted. But no one had turned nasty. We were a bunch of happy drunks on the whole. I thought Graham took it a bit far with his skinny diving, like skinny dipping, but with added jumping off the balcony, but no one was fighting or causing anything other than a bit of mischief. I remember finding you sitting out in the yard. You said you needed a moment to yourself, and I almost left you there, but then you smiled and said it was okay for me to stay. We were more like sisters, you said. You couldn't imagine me not being there, you said. We lay back on the crispy grass, stargazing. I was hopeless, but you knew a few of the major constellations. You were trying to show me the seven sisters when the sound hit. I remember you turning to me, frowning as the ground started to shake, and then a look of realisation? Not exactly fear, but resignation? Understanding? I don't know. I only caught a glimpse of it before the noise engulfed us. I always thought using the word indescribable was a massive cop-out, but that's exactly what it was. We'd been to a few gigs, stood near the speakers and felt the hairs over our body stand up with the reverb and our teeth rattle as the drums pounded, but that was a mere lullaby compared to this. I think I was screaming, but I couldn't hear myself. I tried to stuff my fingers in my ears, but the sheer weight of the noise pinned me to the floor. I felt a popping sensation across the bridge of my nose, followed by a warm spray of blood. I won't lie. I thought then that this was it. There was no coming back for us. This was how it all ended. A massive cosmic yell that tore us all apart.
when I finally came to, my first thought was, is this what it's like to be dead? But then the pain hit, the throbbing in my head and the taste of copper at the back of my throat telling me I was very much alive. I had no idea how long I was out for, but judging by my watch, it was mere seconds. It felt longer, though. Much, much longer. As soon as I managed to gather my wits, I reached out for you. I couldn't see properly. I've had to wear glasses ever since the event, and my heart slammed against my ribcage when I realised you weren't there. I thought maybe you'd wandered off, and then panicked that you might have fallen in the pool. I staggered to my feet and managed to stumble back over to the rest of the party. Everyone was doing the same, coming to, wondering what the hell was going on, blood streaming down their faces. It was like something from a horror movie, and a few people started to get a bit hysterical, but everyone was so shell-shocked they couldn't talk any sense into them because nothing made sense. So I just lurched from person to person, asking if they'd seen you. No one had. I fearfully inspected the pool, fully expected to see you floating face down in it. Thankfully, it was empty. I eventually found myself back where we had been laying only moments before. I could see the outline of your body in the crushed grass. And that was the only thing I ever found of you. Your next proper birthday is coming up soon. You would be 24, or, as we would have joked, six. I like to think we would have been planning another party with another stupid theme suitable for six-year-olds. I don't know, dinosaurs or superheroes or something. Instead, I'm writing this letter in the hopes that one day you might read it. I don't know where you went. I don't know where you are. But I do know that you are missed more than you will ever know. All my love, Kaylee. Another lost friend. Another mystery. Did May just wander away, too heartstick to stay and watch her friends forever caught up in a birthday party that never ever ends? Or did something else happen? Was May scooped up by some cosmic force that had other ideas? Was she merely a test subject for something we can't possibly understand? Did one of our cosmic overlords reach into the little environment they built for us and pluck her up like we might a rat in a lab? with no thought of for the rats left behind, wondering where their friend might have gone. Or maybe I just need to go outside a bit more often and stop worrying about all of this so much. I'm going to go now. I need to catch up on sleep. I'm sure all of this isn't helping, but I've been really struggling with insomnia recently. So, as before, if you want to leave me a message, the email is in the show notes. Until next time, if there is a next time, I'm signing off. See you. There's a museum of the missing. Museum of the Missing is written, performed and produced by Claire Waller. The title song, Museum of the Missing, was written by David Rizal and is performed by David Rizal and Claire Rizal. It is used with permission. If you're enjoying the story, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact details and social media links are in the show notes. If you wish, you may also buy the podcast a coffee at Museum of the Missing. Thank you for listening. There's